And we're continuing our conversation related to Christian liberty. And I'm not going to go through a very lengthy review this week. Some of this will come back out. Other parts of it are just too involved to go through. That's why there was a lengthy introduction. And uh, just a small section of what we'll complete today in chapter 8. We'll finish this chapter. The entirety of this chapter relates to the principle that Paul wants to explain as it relates to Christian liberty. Now the thing that the Corinthians said to Paul, as we read in verse 1, is we have knowledge. And so that was the position that they were standing in. We have knowledge. We know what's right. Therefore, we feel like we can do whatever it is that we want to do because we know what we know. Well, Paul gives them great caution in this caution that he provides in these first three verses of chapter 8. will set the tone for most of what Paul is going to say in chapter 8, and that will be further explained and illustrated in verse in chapters 9 and 10. And the thing that Paul says that begins this cautionary tone to them is what we see in the latter part of verse 1, knowledge makes arrogant, and that word means to be puffed up. And so what Paul is saying is you're boasting in your knowledge, and I want you to recognize that your boasting is an indication of your arrogance, of your self-righteousness, and your lack of concern for those that are a part of the family of God within your church in Corinth. So Paul takes their self-righteous posture and he challenges it with the antithesis of love, of, excuse me, of knowledge being arrogant, and that is what we see in the tail end of verse one, that love builds up. Paul says love edifies. And so when we walk in love, when we act in love, That love will build other people up, whereas the knowledge that they were boasting in and that they were standing firmly entrenched in was actually having the opposite effect of building up their brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul explains what he means as he contrasts the idea of knowledge and love, what we see in verse 2, and that's this, knowledge is incomplete. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. So you ought to know better than you do. It's an an indication that you don't really know all that you think you know. So I'll repeat some of the things I said last week that emphasize this point. And that is that the truly knowledgeable person has some idea of what they have yet to learn. They know they have not yet arrived. Now you can talk to your 15-year-old, your 18-year-old, your 21-year-old, and you can tell them you really don't have a firm grasp on what life in the world is really like. And they look at you with rolled eyes and they say, Dad, you just don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what they don't know. So this definition that I repeated that is a definition for knowledge is this, the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. And that's a good place to be. I know there's things that I don't know. I don't necessarily know those things that I don't know, but I know that I don't know everything. Therefore, I am not a know-it-all, and I can't impose what I do know on everyone else, assuming that they know what I know, and I can't look at what other people know and say, well, I don't know that yet, and I don't agree with you because I don't know that. Isn't that fun? So ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge does not know and knows 
that it does not know. So knowledge by itself is incomplete because knowledge is rooted in love. And what Paul says here in verse 3 is quite surprising, but if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. And so what Paul wants to set out in the beginning of this very lengthy description of what Christian liberty is, is the true basis, the real basis of knowledge, and that is knowledge of God's love and being known by Him through that love. So true knowledge is knowing God and knowing the love of God and living out the Christian life based upon that love and not on the the knowledge that you have accumulated in your many, many years of being a Christian. Now, let's go ahead and read the remaining part of chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 4, and we're going to go all the way through the end of verse 13. And we'll explain this principle in two more pieces. So here's what it says. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things... Excuse me, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled." But food will not be commend excuse me, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, or the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, there's a lot in here. And some of it is a little bit more difficult to sift out. And some of it isn't clear whether this is something that the Corinthians have said to Paul in the letter that he received from them that we don't have a copy of. And he's responding back to them using their words and their terminology. Or if this is simply Paul's response to the things that he has said. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail as we go through this. So now Paul begins identifying the knowledge they profess to have that we looked at the beginning in verse 1. And so number 2 in our outline is this. We know there is one God. So this is the knowledge that the Corinthians are confident in, that they are boasting in, and they say, we know there is one God. So after repeating their slogan back to them, we have knowledge, and using it to make his point that love trumps their knowledge, Paul now agrees with the knowledge that they claim to have. And what Paul says in this is simply, idols are nothing. 
We have knowledge. We know there is one God and that idols are nothing. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So he's agreeing with them. But that agreement does not give them a license to live their lives under their alleged guise of Christian liberty to do whatever they want, however they want, because they have this knowledge. So they all agree that an idol really is nothing, and he isn't disagreeing that people have created idols. He's simply acknowledging that the idols people create are in actuality Nothing at all. The material the idol is made from is real, real, whether it be stone or wood or metal, but there is no true God behind it. The psalmist so eloquently painted this picture in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. Speaking about the non-Jew, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Very, very clear what the psalmist is saying with what Paul is articulating is that we know that an idol is actually nothing at all. From the very beginning, when God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and when Moses went up the mount to hear from God, and Aaron and others were busy in the camp crafting a golden calf, it was really not a god, right? It was just an image of something that they created in their own mind to be a substitute for the one true God. When the Canaanites bowed before the Asherah pole, there was no God behind it. And today, listen to this, when hundreds of millions of people bow before a statue of Buddha, there is not a God behind that statue. He has eyes but can't see, ears that can't hear, a throat but he can't speak, a nose and he can't smell, and if they give him hands and feet, he cannot feel and he cannot walk because he is not a real God. These idols are simply counterfeits. This is what Paul says in verse 5. For even if, this is a complicated verse, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now it's important to understand what Paul is saying here. He's refuting their position based upon their common knowledge, and he's using some of their terminology against them to make his point. So Paul is not making a concession that there are real, quote-unquote, lesser gods. He's simply acknowledging that the religious pluralism in Roman Corinth, without any commitment to the existence of the many, many deities and their so-called gods that they ascribe to. Remember, there were more than a dozen temples within the city of Corinth. There were groups of gods that they had assigned specific activity to. There was also Roman cult worship that took place within the city of Corinth. There were more fake gods, fake idols, than you could shake a stick at. And Paul's not saying, well, there really is something real to them. It's apart from however anybody thinks these things are real, they are really, quote-unquote, lesser gods. So some think that what Paul intends to mix into this is a statement that acknowledged the demonic manifestation 
that can accompany the worship of one of these quote-unquote lesser gods. Now think about this. If Satan is real, and we believe that he is real, and if we understand him to be a fallen angel, and when he, Lucifer, sinned against God, and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven with Lucifer, then it stands to reason that there is a true demonic potential within the numerous so-called gods of this world, but it does not make them deity. It simply means that there is a demonic manifestation that is associated with or is manifested through this idol, And this is something that many believe Paul is agreeing with as he says these things. So remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Now he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it could also be implied that our struggle is not against the false deity that is represented by an idol, even though it might have some powerful demonic manifestation associated with it. So spiritual battle is very real, and it is being waged between the forces of good and evil, but a demonic presence or a manifestation of a demonic presence is not the same as a deity. People may worship them, but that does not make them real gods. Paul says, so even if there was any reality behind these idols, and there really isn't, He goes on to say, they are not Lord. You really need to connect verse 6 with verse 5 and read it and understand it as a single sentence as it appears to be in the original Greek. So even these alleged idols, if they were even little gods, even if they were real gods, they are not Lord. And so Paul here says in verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So when you see the phrase, there is but one, there is but one God, it ought to sound similar to the Shema, which was the great declaration within the nation of Israel that a faithful Jew would recite three times a day, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so many believe that this is what Paul is saying as a way to remind them of the knowledge that they all share together, that there is but one God. So Paul expands upon the truth that there is but one God. So the one God, in contrast to the many gods... And the one Lord, in contrast to the many lords, and it speaks to the uniqueness of the only God as compared to the many, many idols that are present within the pantheon of worship that existed within Roman Corinth. So this speaks to the uniqueness of God. It's a very clear statement about monotheism, that there is one God, 
presented in the form of the Father and of the Son. So here's what Paul says in this, that God the Father is the ultimate source of all things. Another way for saying that God is Creator because all things are from Him. And Paul goes on to say, and all things are for Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the divine mediator through whom God created all things and redeemed us for Himself. So here's what Paul is trying to say, and I think this is a, is a wonderful way of understanding it, is this. The Corinthians are arguing in the abstract that idols do not exist because there is only one God, and Paul agrees with them, but the redemptive activity of the Father and Son is the basis of Christian behavior. The basis of Christian behavior is not abstract theology, even if that theology is true. This is why Paul says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The love that we know from God, the love of God for us, is what is to dictate and drive our Christian behavior, not abstract theology. We are here for Him and for His purposes, and as a result of God being our Creator and our Redeemer, we should therefore live our lives in light of the redemptive activity of God, not abstract theology. So in context of what Paul is saying here is this. Christian liberty or Christian freedom is not to be exercised or lived out for is, is to be lived out for God not for ourselves our Christian freedom our Christian liberty is to be lived out for God in light of his redemptive activity not for ourselves we are free to love him we are free to serve him we are free to live for him as opposed to being free to live for ourselves by living out our Christian freedom regardless of how it may impact somebody else. Now, at the very beginning of this passage, all the way back in verse 1, Paul repeats the slogan and says, we have knowledge, which is their position. And Paul refutes that now here in verse 7 and says, but not all understand these things that you are declaring to be true. Verse 7 says, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now this is probably the most complicated verse in this section. So the Corinthians are boasting in their knowledge, and they have failed to recognize their error. Not everyone has the knowledge that they assume that others have. I have this knowledge, and I assume that everybody else has that knowledge. Why? Because I have that knowledge. Some were new Christians. They were recently converted out of paganism with its many temptations and its many corruptions. They are still, excuse me, they still imagine that idols, though evil, were real and that the gods the idols represented were real. They knew that there is only one right God. But perhaps they had not yet fully grasped the truth that there is really only one true God. 
Think about that. If you grew up in a culture where there were literally dozens of deities and you came to know Christ, you may not automatically ditch all of the idols that you have had in your life and now all of a sudden know that there is only one God and only one real God and all these other gods are fake gods. In fact, when you share Christ with somebody today who comes from a pluralistic religious background, well, you need to accept Jesus Christ into your heart and make Him Lord and Savior in order to be saved. They say, oh, okay, we'll just add Him to the shelf. What's He look like? What's the idol? What do I put on there? Is there a bird? Is it a tree? Oh, the cross? Is that what I put on there? And so they don't understand that there is but one true God. It's just another God to add to the mix. So even if they did understand that there was only one real God, which is a possibility, the experiences of their past paganism were so fresh that they rejected all that was related to it. So there's two sides to this. Either they don't understand that all these idols aren't real, or they do understand it, and they're ditching everything associated with that, and it's creating a problem for them as they observe the behavior of other Christians. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail in just a moment. So for these individuals who are trying to ditch everything that reminds them of their past pagan background, to participate in any way was to be tempted to fall back into that form of practice which they had been saved from. Now remember, we're talking about gray area. We're talking about doubtful behavior. We're not talking about clearly taught right and wrong as we would understand it in the Bible. So when the Bible doesn't particularly condone or condemn or teach a certain thing, it creates for us a gray area, and we have to figure out how to apply principle to that. And not everybody comes up with the same conclusion when they try to apply their principles. That's why in some Christian groups, it's a sin for a woman to wear makeup. It's a sin for a woman to wear long pants. It's a sin for guys to gather around and play cards. It's a sin to listen to certain kinds of music. It's a sin to go to certain kinds of movies. The Bible doesn't speak to these things clearly. And so if you've been saved out of a a particularly pagan, heathen, worldly background, you may not on the one hand understand that there is but one true God and He deserves your fullest devotion. Or you may say, I want nothing to do with that former background and I'm trying to run as far away as I can from it. And when I see people that I trust and respect engaging in that kind of behavior that I'm running away from, it creates a problem for me. This is why our sense of Christian freedom needs to be exercised cautiously because not everyone has the same theological understanding and our sense of freedom may become an enticement to someone who is weaker in both their understanding and their ability to withstand those temptations. Now, just to give you an example... If you're dealing with somebody who's struggling with an addiction, the last thing you want to do is take them to a place where that addiction is being participated in in abundance, right? You wouldn't want to do that to somebody that's struggling and overcoming something like that. You would not ever want to take them anywhere near a place like that. And this is what Paul is talking about. Now, I can speak for my own life. When I was saved at the ripe old age of 21, I was as pagan as pagan could be. You could have quoted John 3.16 to me and I couldn't have told you where you found it, who said it, what it meant. 
I've been to church four times. A Catholic church, a Mormon church, and some other Protestant church, I assume. I really don't know. And when I came to know who Christ was, that He died for me, and that I needed to be saved, I got rid of everything that related to my former way of life. Everything. I lost all my friends. I lost my brothers. I threw away all my music. I dumped everything. And when I got involved in church and I began to meet Christians and I began to hang out with them and learn from them and began to admire them and respect them and look up to them and saw them participating in activities that I had dumped months earlier, I went, well, wait a minute. Is there something wrong with my understanding or is there something wrong with the way they're living? See, that's a really bad combination for somebody who is young and immature in the faith. And so this is why we need to be incredibly careful that we don't publicly flaunt our freedom in such a way that it creates a problem for somebody who is weaker than us in our knowledge or in our conviction. Now, the real tricky part of this is the introduction of the words conscience and weak. Conscience does not indicate a clear conviction from the Holy Spirit. It is one's own sense of moral rightness. So, for example, when you're in the store as a kid and you've got 25 cents and the thing you want is 50 cents, you go, I can slip that up my pocket and my sleeve I know that's wrong. That's your conscience, right? So you have a moral understanding of what is right and what is wrong. But when you try to apply that to gray area within Christianity, it's not so easy to do. So when Paul uses the word conscience, he's talking about our own moral understanding of what is right and wrong. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is it depends upon where you grew up and what you were exposed to, the kind of environment you were in, and how much you understand about this new religious thing you're applying to your life. There's a lot of factors that are to be added to our understanding of what conscience really means. But conscience is not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it means, and it's important that we understand that that is not what it means, because if it is the conviction of the Holy Spirit then we need to stay away from that thing. So on the one hand, we have this this moral conscience thing where somebody coming out of paganism says, I don't want anything to do with that. And they see somebody engaging in that, and it becomes a temptation for them, or it becomes an offense to them because they see someone that they know and respect doing something that they are trying to rid from their lives. So moral conscience is relative to the person. So because of the pagan past, and because they were accustomed to idols, they cannot eat any food that is thought to be associated with an idol because of the strength of conviction that they have even if they know that eating is harmless. So, when we say, well, eating food sacrifice an idol is harmless because I know there is one God, and I know that idols aren't really real, well, it may not be harmful to you, 
but it's potentially harmful to a brother or a sister because their weak conscience, either the conviction that they don't have or the temptation that they struggle with in going back to their old way of thinking. So for them, there is no real conviction that an idol is nothing in the world. So when they are encouraged to attend the cultic meals that are so prevalent within Roman Corinth, as an acceptable form of social engagement, they can't cope with the conflict between their heads and their hearts. I think it's probably kind of like the thing that Paul says, the thing that I do not want to do, I do, and the thing that I want to do, want to do, I don't do. It's that kind of a conflict that they have, is that I don't want to participate in that, but I see somebody I respect doing that, and it's, in t- it's a temptation for me. Or they say, I see someone doing that, and I understand why they can do that, because I think that's wrong. So to see others doing something that their moral conscience could not condone would ultimately lead them back into idolatry and thus destroy them. That's the point that Paul is making here. And it is in this way that their moral conscience is defiled. Now, I know from my own life, when I saw individuals that I trusted and respected and learned from, and they were engaging in things that I had very early rid myself from, it caused me to go, well, maybe those things aren't so bad after all. What does that mean? It means that our moral compass is being, or our moral conscience is being affected by what someone else is doing, and that's a dangerous place to be. Now, Paul identifies the third thing in the explanation of this principle, and this, I hope, drives the point home. Number three is, we know food is unimportant. This is what Paul says in verse 8, and agrees with them. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. What we eat or do not eat has no spiritual significance at all. Now, I'll give you an example. I've been around Christians that I respected, I've been around Christians that I thought loved God with a great sincerity. And they say, well, you know, in the Old Testament it says not to eat pork, so I don't eat pork. Well, if that's the case, I'm not going to order a big fat pulled pork sandwich from Hoods and eat it in front of them and say, well, you don't have my knowledge. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I want to respect their moral conscience. I don't want to create a problem for them, either in tempting them to violate their own moral conscience or to offend them by doing something that they think is not right. But we know that food is unimportant. So since idols are not real, eating food that has been sacrificed to an idol is meaningless. It doesn't mean a thing. What we eat or do not eat will not bring us closer to God, nor will it cause us to be cause us to be more approved by God. Food is unimportant. It makes no difference for food's sake, for ceremony's sake, or for God's sake, but it can make a great difference for the sake of the conscience of some of His children. Now remember, we don't know anything about food sacrificed to idols, but we need to think about this in terms of the gray areas or the doubtful behavior that can sometimes divide Christians and and create problems within the Christian community. So as we come to the principle here in verse 9, we are to consider the weaker Christian. Verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block 
to the weak. That's the principle that we are to exercise in living out our Christian liberty. What would not otherwise be wrong for me to do becomes wrong if it becomes a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying there? You may be absolutely right. You may be able to stand on the authority of God's Word, but if you are going to offend your brother, be careful. Listen to what Paul goes on to say here as we look at this. We should never influence a fellow Christian to do anything that he feels the Holy Spirit is protecting him from. Let me repeat that. We should never influence a fellow Christian to do anything that he feels the Holy Spirit is protecting him from. Paul gives a specific example. Verse 10, For if someone sees you, the one with knowledge, boasting in your liberty, if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things, sacrificed to idols? So since idol sacrifices were common in most social occasions, Involved eating food that was sacrificed to an idol, whether it was the leftover sacrifice that was given back to the individual who made it, and that became the food for some kind of a family feast, a wedding, or a birthday, or some other kind of a banquet. And if you're in the temple eating that, or if you're eating food that was bought in the marketplace that was previously sacrificed to an idol and your brother sees you eating that, he will be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So a mature believer rightly sees no harm for himself in dining in an idol's temple in some family or community event. He does not accept the pagan beliefs or participate in the pagan practices, but he can associate with pagan people because he is spiritually strong. He has spiritual knowledge. But if a Christian who has a moral conscience that is weak, immature, and he sees a believer eating in the temple, the weak brother is likely be, to be tempted to go against his own moral conscience and to eat the thing that has been sacrificed to idol. That could be a danger to him, causing him to go against his own conscience and slide back into idolatrous practices. So let's go back to somebody struggling with an addiction. And they say, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. You say, come on, just one. It's not that big of a deal. I'll sit with you. It's not that bad. God understands. It's not wrong. So we are putting a weaker believer in a position where they potentially can slide back in to a practice that they're not convinced is okay for them to do. So when we're exercising our Christian liberty, caution is necessary. And look what Paul says here in verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. So our Christian liberty, even if it is theologically correct, must never be used at the expense of a Christian brother or sister who has been redeemed with the blood of Christ. You see the caution there? You see the danger there? You've convinced yourself that this gray area is white, 
and you're with somebody who is a new believer or who doesn't share in that same conviction, and they see it as black, and you encourage them and entice them and tempt them into something that they're not good with doing. And Paul says that the weaker brother is ruined. It can bring great difficulty to their life. The caution is necessary to avoid sinning. Now this is where Paul really makes the the principle applicable to the ones that have knowledge and are boasting in their liberty. Verse 12, And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Do you see what Paul says here? Our Christian liberty has the capacity to cause a brother to sin, and if we cause a brother to sin, we are sinning against that brother and against Christ. I quoted this last week when Jesus pulled the little child up onto his knee and says, all of you must become like children to enter the kingdom of God. And it would be better for you to have a millstone thrown tight around your neck and thrown into the river than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So if we want to flaunt our liberty, and if we're not going to take any caution, you've got to understand what God's Word is saying here, that we are going to sin against that brother and against Christ. When we sin against a weaker brother, we're sinning against Christ, and so we should be eager to limit our liberty at any time and to any degree in order to help a fellow believer, a person whom we should love, and a precious soul for whom Christ died, just like He did for you and I. Paul restates the principle that he's been explaining here in verse 13. Therefore, here's what Paul says, the apostle, who knows all of this better than anybody, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So in regard to these doubtful things or the gray areas within Christian lifestyle, a Christian's first concern should not be to exercise their liberty to the fullest extent, but to care first about the welfare of other brothers and sisters who may be weaker in their faith. If we are to take that kind of precaution in our lives then our love will edify our brother. And our lifestyle will be based upon our understanding of Christ's love, not some abstract theology that not everybody understands. Now, on the back of your outline, I've copied for you John MacArthur's principles to consider when you're thinking about these gray areas. This is a good personal study for each of us to engage in at some point throughout the day and look at these principles, ask ourselves these questions, look at the scripture verses and make a true decision about whatever that gray area might be. You know, when uh, we allow our conscience to be our guide, when we're determined to follow our heart, well, the inevitable outcome is we're going to engage in something that is sinful. We're going to not care about a brother 
and we're going to cause them to stumble. And this is what the whole thing is about. This is the principle that Paul is explaining. And we'll look at the next two chapters as we continue through Christian liberty as Paul makes illustration of this principle and then makes very specific application. So stick with us and hopefully we'll get this when we're done. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the great price that was paid to secure that. We thank you for all that you've allowed us to know and understand about who you are and what you've done, about how we stand in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. But I pray, Father, that all that we know would not be used in such a way that it would cause someone who's not in the same place we are with our understanding to stumble, to regress in their desire to love you and live completely for you. God, I pray that we would remember that our arrogant knowledge can become a stumbling block for those that are not where we are, for those that don't share our convictions. We can offend them. We can tempt them. And I pray, Father, that you would instill within us a greater love for the brethren than we have for our love of freedom and liberty. Father, thank you that your word is active and living, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that your spirit will impart this truth into our lives if we will open ourselves up to you and allow you to do that. And I pray that that would be accomplished in each of our lives as we give serious consideration to liberty in the gray areas of life. Father, have your way in our heart and in our life. Make us the people that you desire us to be so that we can bring you glory and honor all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.